just there. So good evening, everyone. Um, I think we might have a few new faces who just arrived today. So on behalf of all the monastics and residents here, I'd like to welcome you to Bhavan Society. We're happy that you're able to join us for the um, rest of this retreat, and we're happy that you were able to drive here safely. So anyway, each night at 7, we have um, anonymous questions submitted to the speaker for the day. So if you ever want to write one of those questions, you can go ahead and put it in this box, which will be in the Sangha Hall. So let's go ahead and get started then. Wanting to be popular or fit in or have one's views respected or admired is craving, but does it also relate to false view of self and how? Well, in fact, any time there's craving, it's always relating to one's conceit, I am, one's sense of self. Hence why the ending of craving is also the end of taking things as me, mine, myself. Those two states are equivalent. And this is easy to see if you kind of think about, you know, how craving works on that level. That is to say that we attempt to appropriate things into ourselves in a way of speaking. Like we try and make more things ours, we try and bring the things that are ours closer to us in a figurative way of speaking. So you think about it, whenever there's craving, it's craving for something that the self can have. Likewise, the opposite with aversion. When there's aversion towards something, there's the pushing away of things from our being. When we say being here, we specifically mean a particular mode of being. So to say, for example, you know, at this given time, there's a particular being in the world that I'm experiencing. And um, if there's craving, there may be, you know, the kind of pulling of the mind towards a different situation where, oh, you know, I could be doing that thing, doing this thing. And that's, of course, coupled with aversion. Whenever there's craving, there's always aversion. If there's craving for something not present, that means there's aversion towards something present. If there's craving for what is present, there's aversion towards something that's not present. But um, Bhante Jayasara will get more into details on all those things when he uh, does his talk tomorrow. And so the same thing goes with these uh, wanting to fit in, wanting to be popular. In fact, the very definition of conceit is... Um, linked to those things. There's three kinds of conceit that the Buddha talks about. There's the, the word, Pali word is mana. It literally means measurement. There's the measurement, I'm better, I'm worse, I'm equal. And so we um, attempt to scry out our position in the world, you know, by relating and comparing ourselves to other people. It's quite a in, uh, ingrained thing. So we see their possessions, we see their status, we see their social circles, and we compare our mind in comparison to that. And so it's all related, you know, craving, conceit, those things are quite closely linked together in this regard. And so the best thing to do when you see these things arising is just to recognize them and begin to see how this craving, how these measurements really are so unwholesome how they don't do us any good and how they bring us discomfort and unease right here and now. I don't know which side this starts on. Okay, I guess here. If I enjoy a certain type of food, crave it, eat it in moderation, enjoy the experience of eating this food, and then I am grateful for the experience, is my craving still a negative thing? I think it's going to some other details. Anyway, I'll start there. Um, any craving whatsoever <coughs> is considered unwholesome in this Dhamma and discipline for the sole reason that when there's craving, it implies that there's a lack of something. 
When there's a lack of something, it implies discomfort, saying, oh, I need that. If I get that, I'll be comfortable. And so, you know, you think about this. Imagine this type of food. Suddenly, I don't know, the plant goes extinct or something like that. Or you can't have access to it. There's a price hike. I don't know. Suddenly, you've opened yourself up for suffering. When we say suffering, of course, it doesn't mean you're going to be rolling on the floor, wailing your eyes out and, you know, beating your breast, running out your hair. When dukkha comes in so many different levels, anything from the very slightest tinge of annoyance all the way out to, you know, full-blown neurosis and psychotic breakdowns and whatever. It's all underneath uh, dukkha. And what's further is that so long as we indulge craving, we feed craving. That is to say, so long as we keep feeding craving, indulging craving, gratifying craving, we're only strengthening the tendency towards craving. And so what happens is you crave something, you get it, and then next time you crave it even more. It's actually like drugs. In fact, all of these sensual pleasures are like drugs, even though we don't call them that. You think of cigarettes, for example. You, you, know, you start smoking cigarettes and, I don't know, you do like one, two, three a day or so. I used to smoke, so I know this. And then after, soon enough, after a few months, you're doing a pack a day. And you're like, oh, when did that happen? Your tolerance is building up. And so you need more and more of that thing to get that same effect. And it's likewise with sensual pleasures. They work in quite a similar way. And if you think about them like that, well, maybe you'll be, will be less mentally inclined to indulge in them so easily. The Buddha says it's very important to see the danger in these things. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves falling into heedlessness and, and uh, dukkha. Now, of course, we do have to eat. And it's not to say that, oh, you can never eat this thing you like again. The fact of the matter is that no matter what we do, we're going to probably generally like what we eat. It's fairly difficult to make food taste bad, at least my experience. <laughs> like even plain rice and plain lentils taste okay. It's nothing to write home about, but I'm not repulsed by it. But, you know, it, people, people try that. They try to make their food as nasty and disgusting as possible so that they go, oh, I'm going to remove my craving for food. But in a way of speaking, they're working from the wrong end. We have to be able to eat foods, regardless of their taste, but looking not at the food itself, like changing the food up, but rather looking at our minds, seeing how the mind reacts to different foods. And uh, I, guess, I, guess, I assume Bhante Jaisar went into a bit of how we practice moderation of eating. I wasn't there, so I, I don't know what he said exactly. But in essence, we're using this food even as a tool of insight. You know, you have a taste in your mouth and you can see all these different aspects of that experience. Is it pleasant? What are the perceptions there? Is it spicy? Is it mild? Is it uh, hot? Is it cold? Is it, what are the different flavors on the palate? And you can see these things and you can um, examine them as that experience of taste is happening and primarily also see, is there craving? Does the mind delight in these tastes that you have? And if so, we can reflect on how they're impermanent, how they're not going to last, how they're, you know, deeply unsatisfying. You know, you have one piece of cake, you're, you don't want another piece of cake. You want to continue having that experience, and that's craving in a nutshell. What else is going on? I love strawberries. <laughs> Sometimes crave them, but I am satisfied after I eat them, and they're nutritious for my body. You say you're satisfied, but I would say that you are gratified. If you were satisfied eating the strawberry, you'd never need to eat a strawberry again. You'd be never do do it. One strawberry and, oh, you know, I don't need strawberries anymore. It's okay. What you've done, in fact, is you've temporarily gratified yourself. But inevitably, the need is going to come back again, and perhaps even stronger. Again, strawberries are a mundane example, but apply this really to anything and it works all the same way. Mm -hmm. This person's talking more about what foods they like. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Is it the craving and desire that can get me in trouble even if it's good for me and in moderation? I am always grateful when I do, but I do occasionally overeat. Yeah, essentially it's the craving and desire that in that are the issue to at hand. Obviously, of course, it's also, you know, important to keep one's food in moderation. That doesn't mean eating one spoonful of rice, but rather it's something that one adjusts based on their, you know, body, their gender, all these different biological concerns. Um, and of course, you know, it's also good to eat healthy food because, well, if you're not eating food for pleasure, there's really not a huge point in scarfing down cookies and cake and stuff. You want to have a little that's fine. But, yeah, and it also just kind of supports meditation practice. When we, you know, don't overeat, we have more energy for practice. When we don't abuse our tongue, we have more, um, we're, not so we're not so caught up in craving and delight. You know, you start craving one thing, how often is it you start craving something else that's not really related? Like, you know, you've eaten a giant bag of chips and now you're kind of in a craving mood and so it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to go do some other sensual things right now. I don't know, watch TV, Netflix, whatever. And yeah, it just cascades like that. And that's the real importance and benefit of restraining ourselves in this regard. That it, it, keep, it really is, it really does a great deal to keep us fo moving forward on the right path. Do Buddhist monks administer any life cycle events, i.e. weddings or funerals? If so, which ones and what is the role of the monk? Well, we don't do weddings, um, because if you think about it, weddings are really a celebration of sensuality, in a way of speaking. And you know, it's kind of a weird thing. Here's the celibate guy to administer your marriage. <laughs> it's kind of like asking a Buddhist monk for marriage advice. It's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Funerals, on the other hand, we love funerals. <laughs> because funerals, right, they're a good time to remind everyone that, hey, this is going to happen to you too. And that's really our role at, you know, I don't want to call them celebrations of death, but funerals and other such events. Like, for example, sometimes we have people who are interned in the columbarium, which you can see buried in the snow over there, and I mean, it's nothing too grandiose. We chant some, reflect some verses from the sutras on death. You can actually find them in the Red Book after the retreat if you're interested. And yeah, basically just inform people like, you know, this person has passed away and we have to reflect. We can't stay around grieving for the person. We can't just, you know, wallow in misery that this person's gone. No, we have to move forward. And in fact, the best way to really repay a loved one who's died is to move forward, you know, with strength and courage, using their death in a skillful way. That is to say, using it to reflect that you too will have that same fate. Hence, you have to live your life better, more meaningfully, more skillfully, and so on. So weddings, no funerals, they're okay. I don't know of any others, like, I don't think we do divorces, though maybe we might be appropriate there too, I don't know, but I don't really want to get involved in that. During the retreat, we are endeavoring to be mindful. Is it inappropriate to spend personal time thinking or contemplating about the contents of Dhamma talks, the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, etc.? Should we just focus on being mindful? Well, you're making a division where there doesn't necessarily have to be one. You know, there is such a thing as thinking mindfully. We can call it almost like thinking intentionally, thinking aware. <clears throat> the thinking we're used to, especially on the cushion, is that unmindful thinking where we just kind of get, you know, drift off into whatever thought world and we didn't really even mean to do it. It just kind of happened. We didn't even know that we were doing it. But there's also a possibility, especially when the mind is, you know, settling down, but not in like the second jhana where thoughts stop, kind of somewhere in between there, that you can think in a, a mindful kind of way, so to say, and it, it, it just feels kind of, it feels very different than the typical distracted thinking. It's very purposeful, it's very connected to the Dhamma. And so that's a perfectly valid thing to do, that's called Dhamma Vitaka, thinking on the Dhamma. 
Now, of course, eventually you do have to just look at your experience as it is, but it is also good to reflect on these things within your thoughts in order to kind of straighten out your understanding of things. That's the benefit of any kind of learning, is that we're learning what we need to find and see in our experience, how to analyze our experience. And so it is imperative to think on these things, but doing so in this kind of mindful way, it's almost as a supercharging in a way of speaking. Things just kind of are very clear. That's the, the best way I guess I could describe it. So no, by all means, think about the contents of the Dhamma talks, think about the Q&As, but just do it very purposefully. Don't get lost in those kinds of thoughts. How long does it normally take to become enlightened with regular meditation practice? I don't want to be reborn again. Um, No, I mean, there's no answer. It's so dependent on so many different factors. One's own faculties, the amount of energy they put into the practice, whether they're even practicing right in the first place. You know, people do practices doesn't mean they're the right practices. So if you're doing the wrong practice, and clearly it's going to not happen if we have wrong understandings and so on. With the Buddha gone for 2,600 years, it's all that much more harder. Back in the day, you know, you could ask the enlightened being in front of you these questions, you know you have the right answer. These days we have to use a bit more of our own discernment, and so there's some trial and error. So inevitably it usually takes a bit, it takes longer. But I can't give you, you know, a... A goal or even a recommended time like oh you should take this many years to do it it's just not possible suffice to say however don't get discouraged by that <clears throat> you know the more you put in the more you'll get out the faster the results you'll get and so regardless of how much time it might take it behooves us to you know devote as much time and energy as possible to understanding and practicing the dhamma i mean even if you don't get enlightened in this life even if you don't attain any of the stages of enlightenment in this life still you're setting these foundations in a way of speaking that you know even in another rebirth it might be that you know you have faculties that have developed You know, people who are born in the deva realms, there's still the possibility of learning and practicing the Dhamma there. That certainly can happen. And so, regardless of whatever uh, might happen, it still behooves us to be skillful, practice skillfully, practice intently, and develop our heedfulness. Because even even if the dividends don't pay off fully in this life, it still might be that there's a future possibility. Never mind the fact that, you know, if you practice to the best of your ability now, you'll, well, have a better life. Simple as that, too. What is the best practical, underlined, source for instruction, underlined, in the many different kinds of meditation in Theravada Buddhism? (laughs) I guess it depends on what you call practical. The one most reliable source, of course, is the suttas. Whether you think those are practical or not might be a different question. But if you really sit with them for a while, you do get used to them, and they're not quite so intimidating. And at that time, they certainly do become practical, and especially important because, you know, just like anything, it's pointing out what's in your experience that you're not seeing. So you go into your meditation and you go, look. It's interesting. You know, you look in the suttas, you don't get this kind of like meditation technique type of thing. That's quite a foreign thing to the suttas. And the reason for that being is that the absolute technique isn't what's important. What's important is what you're seeing, what you're looking for. You want to scan your body, watch your breath, do whatever. As long as you're fulfilling looking into your experience in this way, well, that's all you need. You don't even need a method in that way of speaking. All you just need to do is, oh, I need to look for that, let me go look for it. It's, in a way of speaking, simple. But some people, you know, they want a checklist. Okay, step one, step two, step three, step four. And unfortunately, those people are going to be disappointed reading the suttas. 
but frankly, you don't need that kind of thing. You don't need the, you know, step-by-step detailed list of what you need to do. A lot of it is all about experimenting for yourself. What works, you know, what calms you down so you can see what you need to see. How is it that you analyze experiences? Is seeing what you're seeing helping attenuate your suffering or is it not? And ultimately, it's just working with different understandings and views and trying to work out which one is correct. So, I mean, that's all I can say. I can't sit here and recommend, oh, Sayadaw so-and-so, Ajahn so-and-so, Bhante so-and-so. That's something for you to explore as well. I'm not going to get into that. How How does one develop a plan for which meditation to do when? Well, the question of which meditation, again, it has to come down to, you know, your own experience, you know, you know, for example, like which way of attending to things is, for example, the most interesting to your mind? You know, is it analyzing the mind? Is it analyzing feelings? Is it analyzing one of the many ways of establishing mindfulness in the Dhammas, Four Noble Truths, Factors of Enlightenment, Sense Bases, so on? These are all choices, and which one is most um, edifying and compelling for you is a matter of trying. I can tell you what works for me. I can't necessarily tell you what's going to compel you. Um, As for when, (coughs) the best thing to do really is just set a time, whatever is a convenient time where you have, you know, a lull in things or in the morning or in the evening. Those are good times. And just do it every day. Like, especially, it's very important, do it even when you don't want to do it. That's really the most important thing. And you start doing that and eventually you'll, it'll almost become like a habit. It'll be like brushing your teeth in a way of speaking. Well, maybe not that easy anyway, but you know what I mean. So yeah, just establishing uh, how much is also an important question. Um, of course, the mo- more is usually better. But for most you know, practicing lay people, I think the recommendations are something around like half hour to an hour in the morning, half hour to a hour at night. Some of you may find that, you know, difficult. You may have very busy lives, but then it becomes a question of priorities, really. You know, we can make time for anything if we try hard enough, if we extend ourselves. And frankly, there's nothing better to distribute your time to than this kind of practice. So those would be my recommendations. 30 minutes, hour in the morning to, you know, get your day started. You go to work or do whatever with a, you know, clear, refreshed mind. And then at the end of the day, you know, you reflect on what you've done that day. Have I done anything unskillful? Have I done, what have I done that's skillful? You can reflect on all the contents of your day and you can, you know, either strive to do better or delight in the skillful actions you've done. And it's a really great way to, you know, get yourself ready for the next day. I just don't understand the concept of self, selfless, or non-self. Can you please clarify? Um, Essentially, the idea is that, well, let's start with something obvious. You're you, right? Let's take that statement. That is to say that in your experience, you, it's taken that there is an I. You can say, I am and you're quite confident in that. I am this, I am that, I have this, I have this, so on. We (coughs) quite naturally take us to be ourselves, a self. But you start asking the question, what am I? And of course we can give various answers. You know, I am this occupation, I am this position, I have this relationship, I have these friends, I live here, I work there. I do this, I do that, I like this, I like, don't like that, all these kinds of things. But none, none of those things in and of themselves is, you know, the entirety of you. It's just kind of an amalgamation of different things. And what you'll find also is that all those things are open to changing. And so suddenly you reflect in this way and that stable self, that stable I am that you th- took for granted for so long suddenly comes into question that... Instead of a confident I am, the question can oftentimes turn to a kind of confused and worried am I? And what am I? And so on. 
And this is the root of a great deal of our suffering. Specifically, taking those things which are impermanent as ours. Because as I mentioned in the talk, so long as we take things as ours, or mine, or me, there's investment in them. There's entanglement in them. There's attachment to them. There's clinging to them. When those things inevitably change, we can do nothing but suffer, so long as that clinging is there. Because again, our being, our self, is being challenged, is being threatened. This is the same reason why death is so intimidating to people. It's showing that, oh, this self which I took as lasting may not be lasting. Of course, it's not quite such a simple matter either. And so what we have to do is, we can't just simply say, oh, this is no longer myself. We have to use indirect means. And that's why the Buddha taught these, what's called three characteristics of existence, anicca, dukkha, anatta, or impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. We see that things are impermanent, uncertain, unstable, not lasting. And we turn away from these things because we see that they can't give us the lasting satisfaction that we thought they could nor could we cling to them for any kind of stability, nor could we control them. If things are impermanent and they change and we don't want them to, they clearly aren't in our control. And that's where this idea of self comes in. When we say something is mine, or this is myself, implicit in that is the idea that we are the masters of that thing, that we control that thing utterly and absolutely without question. But we'll soon find that's not the case if we look carefully enough and we look exhaustively enough as well. So the body, for example, you can't stop the body from aging. You can't stop the body from getting sick. You can't stop the body from breaking apart. And there are even limitations here and now, like the body has biological limitations to it. If I drank a lot of poison, I would die. I can't say, okay, liver, go into overdrive now. Let's do this, right? I can't turn my head 180 degrees or anything crazy like that. Well, I won't show you that anyway. <laughs> but yeah, there are these limitations set there. I can't make the body do anything that I could possibly fathom. I can't fly or do anything like that. I really can't do that one, by the way. And so on and so forth. So, not self then, seeing things as natta is a training. We're training by seeing the impermanence and unsatisfactoriness of the things that constitute our experience to no longer take them as me, mine, or myself. The most important one of these being that sense of self as a phenomenon. We have a sense of self arisen and we take that self as our self. That is to say, we accept it. We don't see it as gratuitous. But when we see that that self doesn't need to be there, it's a, you know, a parasite on an experience, then suddenly, well, we, we begin to challenge it. We begin to say, well, do you really need to be there? And you start seeing the relationship between suffering and this being I. So, in a brief way of speaking, and of course this is not an easy thing, and even I can only, you know, speak from my you know, kind of an intellectual understanding of it myself. Otherwise, I would be enlightened, and wouldn't that be merry? But <clears throat> at the very least, this is my understanding of it thus far. Of course, it has to be experienced and understood, you know, for oneself. The words are not enough to, you know, lead us forward in that regard. It requires mindful investigation of all these things. Is there a way to utilize judgment or worry as a part of practice, or should one simply notice and let go as they practice? I guess it depends on what you mean by judgment. Like, for example, you should judge things like, oh, is this skillful? Is this unskillful? It's very good to make that judgment. That's how you start discerning what is wholesome, what is unwholesome, which is, in fact, one of the aspects of a stream mentor. They understand wholesome and unwholesome. So that's very important. As for like judging other people, for example, no, that's not particularly useful. 
You know, it's one thing to acknowledge the faults in others and forgive them and let it go. It's another thing to harp on them and, uh, you know, even let them lead to anger. That doesn't accomplish anything. That just makes you miserable. Likewise with judging yourself. Now, it doesn't mean to be so easy on yourself that you, you know, just are completely lackadaisical and easygoing and you don't put forth any effort. But there's a fine balance between that and being so hard on yourself that you get discouraged. You know, telling yourself that, you know, I'm too stupid to meditate. I'll never get the Dhamma. I'm worthless. All these kinds of, you know, depreciating self-talks that are just, they're not pragmatic in any way. You know, you start telling yourself you're worthless and you can say right back, okay, so let's make ourselves not worthless then, huh? You can kind of challenge these things. And... uh from that, then, there's the possibility of actually coming to overcome them, to stop them, to recognize them that, oh, this is just my mind, you know, it has habits, it has tendencies that have been developed, and these are just delusions, and so on with different specific things. As for worry, um, I'd say that's generally never really a good thing. Um, you know, it's just one of the hindrances to um, concentration, <clears throat> restlessness and worry. Again, it's one manner to, you know, be concerned about something. For example, concerned like, oh, what is happening in my experience? But I wouldn't necessarily call that worrying. When I think of worrying, I think of, oh, I'm harping on this future thing that hasn't come yet and it might go wrong and it might be bad and it keeps going circle, 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 circle over. You know, if these things come up, you can acknowledge, oh, you know, this could happen, right? It's good to have the wherewithal to acknowledge, oh, things might happen. I should, you know, work to try and prevent them as best as possible. But that's quite a different matter than, you know, you do it once and you let it go and then it comes back and it comes back and then it comes back and then it comes back. And it's almost as though the mind is trying to find some angle that it hasn't found before, right? Like, oh, if I just think about it and just keep thinking about it, I'll find something new. But oftentimes, it just keeps on repeating and going nowhere. And so you can reflect on that too, saying, again, you know, this isn't good for me. This isn't what I need to be doing. A good sutta to refer to for that is the 19th sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya. That's called the Dveda Vitaka Sutta. Basically, in that sutta, the Buddha encourages us to split our thoughts into two categories, what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. With regards to unwholesome things, we reflect, yeah, this is unwholesome. This is not good for me. This is not good for other people. And when we, when we recognize an unwholesome thought as unwholesome, we're much less likely to take pleasure in it and to continue feeding it. It's only when we don't recognize these thoughts as wholesome, or I'm sorry, unwholesome, that they really get a grip on us, that we you know, keep feeding into them. You know, like, for example, anger, has a certain degree of gratification to it. It kind of feels good in this kind of odd way to be angry. There's feelings of righteousness and so on and so forth. But you recognize that just the whole thing as an unwholesome mess, and suddenly you have the impetus and the imperative to abandon anger. You see it for what it is, as an arisen problem. And once you recognize an arisen problem, then you can actually take steps to remedy that problem. This is a question about the retreat. The instructions say no reading. Does this mean we should abstain even from reading the suttas during the retreat? How about Pantiji's books? I don't think they went over this in orientation, but the general rule that we do here is not to read any kind of material that includes uh, sutras and Pantiji's books. Um, the one thing that is <coughs> allowed is kind of journaling, you know, writing down your experience or your thoughts or whatever. So that's the official policy on that. Again, we're not going to have, you know, room raids to find your secret smuggled books or anything. Even before achieving jhana, can our practice increase our experience of joy on and off the mat? How do we develop this joy? Yeah, that's certainly possible. You know, just because there's uh, PT. Piti sukha, you know, joy and happiness in the first jhana and beyond, well, a little more complicated anyway, 
doesn't mean that there's absolutely none whatsoever before that. It's not like a black and white thing, like, oh, I'm completely miserable till I reach the first jhana. That'd be pretty unfortunate. <coughs> and so, yeah, even before that, there's PT, as this uh, Pali word for, you know, meditative joy to a degree. It's just that at jhana, it really comes to its fulfillment and culmination in a way of speaking. Um... As for how to develop this joy, um, a few different ways. First off, and the most obvious, is just, you know, calming the mind. When we calm the mind further and further, there's a natural kind of joy that arises from that. It's almost as though the mind is finally getting some rest and relaxation that it hasn't been given, being so busy and caught up in things and craving this and that and so on. Those moments of peace and stillness, they have a certain joy to them. But sometimes that's difficult to do. So there are also more direct ways. One very common one that's advised is practicing the Brahma-viharas. That's things like practicing metta meditation, that's goodwill or friendliness. Karuna meditation, that's uh, compassion. Mudita, which is sympathetic joy. And upekka, which is equanimity. Those are the four literally translated as divine dwellings, Brahma-viharas. <coughs> and joy is a very natural product of these. We extend goodwill towards others and remove anger and irritation from our minds. And that in and of itself, it really nourishes the mind like a, you know, a, um, a fount underwater, like how it brings cool water up from underneath. It refreshes the mind in that kind of way. One that I've found particularly helpful is kind of um, rejoicing in your practice. That is to say that, you know, even before or during your practicing, you just kind of reflect how really wonderful it is that you're doing this. You know, how rare it is to have the opportunity to practice this path. How rare an opportunity it is to have the wherewithal to throw yourself at the practice, to dedicate time and energy to it. And you reflect also, you know, how good the practice is for you. You reflect on <clears throat> the results you've even already seen of the practice. To the, you know, even the most slightest thing is perfectly fine. You know, I'm less stressed, I'm less angry. You reflect on these things, and not only does that bring joy to the mind, but it also gives you the motivation for moving forward. Another one that's often recommended is reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Um, so basically, you know, there's lists of qualities of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And you can reflect on either any one or all of these in your practice. This is a kind of mindful thinking exercise. For example, you think about, you know, how wonderful the Dhamma is, how deep and sublime it is. Again, how wonderful it is you have the opportunity to practice it how much of a blessing that is. You reflect on the Buddha, how wonderful it is that, you know, you have access to the Buddha's teachings. That's an extremely rare thing in the, you know, grand scheme of um, samsara, as we believe it. It's a very rare and precious thing, and it's something worth delighting in. And likewise, you can reflect on the Sangha, reflecting that there have been others who have walked this path. It's a well-worn path, in a way of speaking, it's just a matter of, A, finding the path in the first place, and then, B, after that, actually walking the thing. Um, and finally, another good one is called sila nusiti, which is reflecting on one's own virtue. This, of course, requires you to be virtuous in the first place. If you're not that, you have to work on that first. <laughs> but essentially, you reflect that, you know, oh, you know, I'm keeping these precepts and other you know, um, standards for myself well. Whenever we set ethical standards for ourselves and we meet those standards to the best of our ability, we've set up the conditions to have joy arise in our mind because we can reflect how we're either, you know, doing a good job of that or at least doing our best in that, how we, you know, um, correct any missteps and breaking the precepts quickly how we don't hide our faults from others, but rather we confess and, you know, are open in these things. 
generally just acting in these virtuous ways that the Buddha describes, just acting in those ways in and of themselves makes us generally more joyous and content. But reflecting on them is also a way to kind of, you know, get the engine going. Kind of like how, you know, you have a <clears throat> an engine, you have to prime the engine, you have to pull the cord with the choke a few times. It's It can be the same way with, you know, getting meditation started and reflecting in these ways can be useful for that. Can you give some practical advice or tools in overcoming things like jealousy or insecurity in relationships? I am aware of these feelings and the suffering they cause, but simply telling myself not to have them doesn't make them go away. Thank you for taking your questions. Uh, You're asking the celibate monk for relationship advice again. (laughs) But no, it's it's a question about the mind, so that's legitimate. Um, I can't give you any relationship advice, quite frankly, although maybe talking to your partner might be a good thing, you know, asking yourself, why am I jealous and insecure in the first place? You know, it's assuming you have a halfway decent partner, then it's certainly a good step to, you know, inform them of these things and, you know, be open with them, I think. I don't know, don't take my word on any of these things. (laughs) Not my forte. Anyway, as for the jealousy and insecurity, again, it's good, yeah, as you say, you know, just a brute force like, you know, don't do that, generally isn't going to work very long. What you need to do instead is conduct investigation like a detective. Why am I jealous? Why am I insecure? And what you'll find generally is that it's not necessarily a problem with them, it's a problem with you. Right? You have some kind of fear, for example. You have a fear of being abandoned, a fear of being conned. You can observe these fears, observe how they're just simply craving. I want things to be this way. I don't want that, I want that. And hence why you have the suffering. The jealousy is the same way. It's just craving in a very uh, obtuse form. You see something else that someone has, and you say, I want that too. And there's craving. As for the first one, the practice of mudita, that sympathetic joy, <coughs> is a very potent remedy for jealousy. The practice generally involves seeing the good fortune of people, and instead of you know, saying, you know, they don't deserve that, who are they? Or trying to covet those things, We develop the mind to delight in the happiness of others, to delight in (coughs) their good fortune. This is, you know, it's a gradual process. It's not always an easy thing, especially in very charged uh, situations like this might be. But you keep reflecting on that, and you keep further reflecting on the reasons why you should think in that way. That's very important. So you reflect, for example, you know, okay, whether they deserve it or not is entirely irrelevant, really, but I should cultivate sympathetic joy for them because it makes me happy. That may sound selfish to you, but I call it enlightened self-interest. If it benefits you and it benefits others, well, why not do it? And so you reflect on the motivations for doing these kinds of Brahma-Vihara practices, and you kind of use them to really add strength and weight to the intentions you put forth. And likewise, of course, with you know, any of the Brahma-viharas, it's good to cultivate those towards partners and everyone and anyone um, <clears throat> for the similar reasons, so that you, you know, don't have as much anger towards them or it's harder for anger to arise in the first place. As for the insecurity You know, it's a very interesting look, really, at being. You know, when we get into a relationship, it's often such a defining feature of our existence. And so the fear of, you know, being broken up with, being cheated on, is almost like a fear of death in some ways, a fear of losing my identity, losing myself into, you know, um, uncertainty, basically. 
So inevitably it might happen. You know, it's important to reflect on that with our partners as well. They might leave us, they might, you know, die, they might get sick. <clears throat> and so we can't attach to them. It doesn't mean, you know, you have to, you know, say, get out. I'm not being attached to you anymore. <laughs> if you want to do that, you can investigate that. But, um, yeah, but just basically reflecting on that from time to time is very important in preventing that kind of arisen suffering. So... Another thing also, of course, is that, you know, I'm not a psychotherapist, and oftentimes, you know, dhamma and therapy do overlap, but they are quite distinct things, in fact. So, I mean, if it's something that's really, really pressing on you, there's no, no shame in, you know, finding a relationship counselor, just, you know, someone who's trained in working through these issues. But from a dhamma perspective, just recognize the craving and keep recognizing that it's unwholesome. And eventually, your mind will turn away from it. It's just going to you know, take some time and maybe be a little unpleasant in the meantime. What's also useful, I think, is you know, establish, really establishing yourself in the practice. When you establish yourself well in the practice, you gain a certain sense of confidence in yourself. Not in like the conceited kind of way, hopefully, of like, I'm such a great meditator, man, look at me, right? You don't want that, but rather a, a sense of general well-being that kind of, it makes you think like, you know, these things might happen. There might be troubles and tribulations, but I think I can handle them. And you know, once you get to that point, it's a really, it's a really a, such a paradigm shift. It's really such a peaceful thing, knowing that, or at least believing anyway, um, that you can get through it, that it'll be okay. But that's not an automatic thing. It requires to one to be really well grounded in the practice of meditation and one's own faculties. So I would advise that. <coughs> if I don't reach enlightenment, what happens to my soul between death and rebirth? How does my rebirth get determined to say, why do I come back as to who what, am I this rebirth? There's a few questions. If I don't reach enlightenment, what happens to my soul between death and rebirth? Now, of course, the first issue that comes up here is this idea of soul. This is, you know, basically interchangeable with ideas of self, this permanent thing that is us. In fact, in certain branches of Hinduism, they say, oh, the soul is like a globe and it's somewhere here. I don't know, someplace. Bandeji tells that story anyway. I've never read it. And so, first off, obviously, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with it because, in truth, there is no such thing as a soul to be found. It's just an abstraction, really. As for what happens between death and rebirth, well, the Buddha doesn't say. Simple as that. Now, you may be thinking that's a cop-out answer or that, you know, maybe the Buddha was faking it, he didn't know. But the reason for this is that the mechanisms of rebirth, as though if you were to describe it scientifically, which in truth you really can't, but that's a different matter. The mechanisms of that are not what's important. You can study the mechanism of how rebirth occurs all you want, but it doesn't mean you're going to be free from rebirth. I mentioned in my Dhamma talk the simile of the handful of leaves, and it's one of those leaves in the forest. Sure, the Buddha has knowledge of how it all happens, but it has very little to do with actually overcoming birth, death, suffering, and so on. Unfortunately, however, exegetical works have tended to try and, you know, give answers to this. And the entire trying to answer the question in the first place is just simply a misguided effort. It's just simply an um, intellectual or academic fancy. It has nothing to do with actually following the Buddhist path. Uh, let's see what else. How does my rebirth get determined to say, why do I come back as who or what I am with this rebirth? And essentially, yeah, that's the um, principle of karma, or Pali is kama, which is basically to say that the actions that we commit, whether skillful or unskillful, must certainly have consequences, either in that very instant or later in this life or even in a future life. <clears throat> and so there are certain actions or sets of actions perhaps that determine you know, the realm of one's rebirth in the same way 
there are a number of different suttas in the um, um, various places, like the Majjhima Nikaya, for example, that describe like you know a person with such and such a faculty, such and such a faculty who does these things may find themselves reborn in such and such a place. But what's important to emphasize also is two things: a that the question of the exact workings of karma is quite a complex matter. In fact, the Buddha says that one who tries to fathom the depths of karma, if they're not a Buddha themselves, has, will probably go crazy, just trying to figure it all out. There's just, you think of all the actions you do in any day, and there's so many threads going here and there. It's just utterly chaotic. And also, again, the exact mechanism of that is, as we mentioned before, it's, it doesn't have to do with overcoming karma. That's one synonym of enlightenment, the end of action, the end of karma. That's the goal here, not understanding how it transfers from life to life and all these kinds of things, but rather understanding action in the present, understanding it right here and right now. Um, but essentially, in summary, you know, if one does skillful deeds by body, speech, and mind, they're more likely to be born in a... a um, a pleasant destination, a heavenly world, or something like that. If they do unskillful things, they're more likely to be reborn in a painful world, such as the hell realms, the ghost realms, and the, uh, what call it, the animal realms. Of course, that's not a guarantee either. There can be other variables that come into play. Um, I think it's one of the Kamavibhanga suttas in the Manjiminikaya, I don't remember which one, where it says, like, you know, a person can be seen in this life, you know, committing skillful deeds, but still be reborn in a bad destination. The reason being that there is a very strong action in the past, past life perhaps, that had an effect on that future life. So it's all kind of a mishmash of uncertainty, really. And there's just simply no point in trying to <clears throat> figure it all out. But what is imperative and useful is, again, continuing to practice the Dhamma, continuing to conduct oneself skillfully, recognizing that, you know, if I put my coins into skillful action, then there will be fruit and benefit from that at some point. And there may even be the possibility of overcoming um, suffering in and of itself, you know, based on and supported by skillful principles. So I don't mean for this to sound like a cop-out, and I don't intend to tell you that your question is bad or stupid or anything. They're very common questions, but my advice is simply that, you know, the Buddha says these things are not really central to the path. You have suffering here and now, and that's the question we really have to deal with at every moment. Okay, so we, had, we made pretty good time there, so thank you for submitting all your questions. And uh, so tomorrow, Bhante Jayasara will be doing all these activities. So if you have questions for him uh, after his talk or before his talk, you can submit those and he will answer those tomorrow. And thank you. So go ahead and take a short break and we'll come back and uh, meditate till bed at 9 o'clock. <laughs>